it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Ha. This sound like theme music. Motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Check the score. Jamel show improving. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. I feel like I don't even need to ask if you all watched the Super Bowl because it reached 167 million viewers, averaging about 112 million viewers. It was the most watched television show in five years. But as big as the game itself was, and people jokingly referred to the Super Bowl as a concert with a little game happening in between, And that is because for the first time in history, it was going to be an all hip hop halftime show, which featured Dr. Dre, Snoop, Mary J. Blige, Eminem and 50 Cent, who was the surprise guest. Also, my man Anderson Pac on the drums. It was a great show, but there was so much going on around the show that the word that came to mind for the word of the week is conflicted. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Let me start with the good. This was a great moment for hip hop. I mean, hip hop is the number one music genre in the world. And for so long, hip hop artists, the culture, the music itself just wasn't accepted by the mainstream. The idea of hip hop being the sole headliner at the Super Bowl was probably laughable to the NFL 10 years ago. I certainly considered it to be a huge impossibility. I mean, it's one thing to have a hip hop artist do a little something with Katy Perry. It's another thing for hip hop to be center stage from a nostalgia standpoint. It was great to see our pioneers get this moment because performing at the Super Bowl puts you in a special class. I mean, Prince, Michael Jackson, Rolling Stones, Aerosmith, Diana Ross, The Temptations, Phil Collins, Gloria Estefan. They've all been Super Bowl performers. It is a space specifically reserved for icons. It's also a great money-making opportunity, too. I mean, the Super Bowl halftime performers, while they don't get paid, the level of exposure they receive is just unprecedented. As of the taping of this podcast, Steel D.R.E. was number two on Spotify's top 50 daily song chart. Next episode was number five. Lose Yourself was number nine. Forget About Dre was number 19. California Love was number 20. These are all songs that are like 15, 20 years old, and they're all charting because of the halftime performance. If you have something to promote, the Super Bowl gives you a phenomenal opportunity to sell shit because Mary J. Blige dropped the album the Friday before the Super Bowl, and then after her appearance in the halftime show, Mary was posting on Instagram everything she had going on. She has an artist series on Peloton. Really looking forward to that as a Peloton user. She did a Super Bowl commercial promoting women's wellness. She dropped that her wines are now available on a different app. She been out there promoting. But as I watched the show, there was a part of me that felt a little disappointed because I started to think about everything it took, really what it cost to be more specific for this moment to be had. For one, it took Jay-Z brokering a deal with the NFL to curate the NFL halftime show. And that shit still doesn't sit right with me. When Jay partnered with the NFL, it felt like the social justice element of their partnership was the smokescreen that was used to hide the fact that this was really about a bag. 
and opportunities for musical artists. Now, there's nothing wrong with that on the face of it. But when Jay-Z said that we're past kneeling, referring to Colin Kaepernick, it just left a bad taste. As he's cozying up to the NFL commissioner, Roger Goodell, this is the same Jay-Z that said that he didn't need the Super Bowl. And he wore a Colin Kaepernick jersey on Saturday Night Live. This partnership just started looking real funny in the light. So many people were convinced that Jay-Z had a bigger play in mind, maybe NFL ownership. But based off my years of covering the NFL, I just can't begin to explain how naive that was. Jay-Z wasn't going to change the institutionally racist NFL. Hip hop halftime shows aren't going to get the NFL owners to value black men as leaders instead of as laborers. Roger Goodell works for the owners, not the other way around. And I can't stop thinking about the fact that Buffalo Bills owner Terry Pagula said in a meeting with players in 2017, after the kneeling had happened and the NFL was trying to get players to stop kneeling, back when Donald Trump was just blistering the NFL with criticism over Colin Kaepernick, Pagula told those players in that closed door meeting that the NFL should borrow a page from the NRA's playbook referring to how the NRA used to use Charlton Heston as a spokesperson to soften their image. Pagula said, and I quote, for us to have a face as an African-American, at least a face that could be in the media, we could fall in behind that. Basically, he wanted somebody black to step out there for the NFL and take all the heat and criticism that they were currently under for how they treated Colin Kaepernick. And for that matter, how they continually kept black leadership frozen out of the coziest and upper level circles of the NFL. And next thing you know, they're entering a partnership with Jay-Z. They got a black face that they could hide behind who was willingly handing them the keys to the culture, a culture they never deserved. There was also the issue of the NFL reportedly asking the halftime performers to change their lyrics, specifically those lyrics that were critical of the police. Now, Dr. Dre didn't change his, but Kendrick Lamar did. That hate the popo line and all right, never made it. It's complex. If you get let into a room that you've been dying to be in, but once you get in there, they tell you that what you intrinsically bring isn't exactly what they want. Do you still want to be in that room? Do you still think the access is worth it? I don't know the answer to these questions, but I think these are questions worth asking. And then you had Eminem kneeling during his performance, and it was supposed to be an acknowledgement of Colin Kaepernick. Eminem has been very supportive of Colin Kaepernick. And then there were different reports about whether the NFL knew Eminem was going to kneel. Some said they did know and were fine with it. Others said Eminem asked. And then the NFL said no, and he did it anyway. My question is, is it a protest or dissent if you are asking permission to do it? Generally not how protests work. Another question. How is it a tribute to Kaepernick when the one thing he probably really would have wanted was for these artists not to perform at the Super Bowl? But I balance these feelings against also getting to witness some of the most authentic blackity black shit ever at a Super Bowl. Let's start with Snoop smoking weed before he hopped on stage. First of all, everybody knows how Uncle Snoop gets now. And besides that, it's legal in California. So who cares? So for the New York Post to single Snoop out for this. Bitches ain't shit but hoes and tricks. Can we also talk about the coordinated crip walk by the dancers during Still DRE? As someone on Twitter called it, the Hamilton version of crip walking. I mean, crip walking at the Super Bowl? Never would have made it. 
Then there was my girl, Mary J. Blige, out there exposing all her glorious thigh meat, patting her weave as she sang No More Drama, and then falling completely out like she had been hit with a Holy Ghost lightning bolt. What a time. Listen, I'm also a walking contradiction, so I'm not pretending I'm above the fray or above criticism or above it all. I've been watching the NFL my entire life. I took my husband to the Super Bowl because he'd never been before, and this was on his bucket list of things he most wanted to do. Yet, if I'm being honest, the main thing keeping me interested in the NFL is my job. But also this duty I feel to keep my foot on the NFL's neck. I get paid for my commentary and the more the NFL fucks up, the better it is for me in many regards. But something I also think about is this. Why do black people always have to be the ones to sacrifice? Why are we the ones that always have to give something up in the fight against racism and white supremacy? Black players built the NFL. It became a billion dollar business because of their sweat, their labor and what they put their bodies through. Black musicians throughout their history have been undervalued, underpaid and exploited. Don't they deserve the opportunity to make as much money as possible? This is the double consciousness that W.E.B. Du Bois talked about in the souls of black folks. This is what W.E.B. Du Bois wrote. One ever feels his two-ness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, Two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. The history of the American Negro is the history of this strife, this longing to attain self-conscious manhood, to merge his double self into a better and truer self. In this merging, he wishes neither of the older selves to be lost. Conflicted. The word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Oh, and one more thing before I get to today's guest. The best Super Bowl halftime performance was Prince singing Purple Rain in the Rain. Don't at me. Now on to today's show. A big problem I see in politics is that so many elected officials are completely out of touch when it comes to the experiences of many Americans, especially those in the working class. They sit from on high. And if they're in politics long enough, especially at the highest levels, they have become a privileged class. Most of our senators are millionaires. Well, time's over. My guest today is truly a politician that can relate to adversity, to being without, to a struggle that is so common for so many people. She's been unhoused, survived sexual abuse, raised her babies with little help. It's just rare that a lawmaker comes with this kind of resume that allows her to resonate with people so strongly. She is the first black woman from the state of Missouri to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives. Despite the fact she has risen in politics, she maintains an activist heart and mindset. She very much understands the assignment. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Representing the great people of St. Louis, Congresswoman Cori Bush. So, uh, Representative Bush, it is, I didn't plan it this way, but nevertheless, this is the way it is. I'm talking to you on the day that President Biden is expected to endorse changing the Senate rules to pass new voting rights protections. Voting rights has been something you certainly have been very passionate about. 
most progressive, most activists, most Democrats have because they understand that basically our democracy is on the brink. And while he isn't calling for a complete elimination of the filibuster, even though he should, he is instead calling for a filibuster carve out. One, how does this filibuster carve out work just for the people listening so they understand how this is done? Yeah, so right now, I'm not sure exactly what is going to be on the table, what they're talking about, um, how they're talking about carving it out um, at this point. Um, We've just been very intentional about making it clear that, you know, thank you for wanting to do a carve out, but what we really need is abolishment. When we do a carve out for it, when we say that we are going to allow like this seat to happen with the filibuster for voting rights so we can get voting rights across the across the board. Um, But we have all of this other legislation that's sitting in the Senate that we feel is very important. And the people have been asking for this legislation as well. When We talk about immigration reform police reform, proact for our unions, rights for our LGBTQ community, and so much more that's just sitting. We want to see voting rights happen, absolutely, but the people have been asking for all of this stuff for such a long time, and we have the White House, we have the Senate, and we have the House. Why can't we get these things across? So that's what our push is uh, right now. Well, how meaningful overall is it that President Biden is finally saying, hey, we need this carve-out Um, And seemingly being a little bit more activated when it comes to voting rights, even though, again, from the beginning, everybody knew this had to be step one. Step one had to be securing voting rights, stopping this massive wave of Republican uh, led legislation in terms of voter suppression. So how meaningful is it that he's in Atlanta speaking to this now? You know, I think that one thing is who has been doing the work in Georgia, let's say just Georgia, because that's where he is. Who has been doing the work to, you know, turn out the vote, to get people registered, to get people to show up? Um, Who has been fighting this? As an activist, I am strong in always remembering who has been doing the groundwork. And so for me, what do the people on the ground say they need from me? Because they're the ones that did the work to get that elect to to take the Senate and to help make sure that the White House happened uh, with a Democrat. So what are they saying that they need right now? Because I need to be the most helpful. I need to be the most effective and efficient in this moment as their president. And so finding out what they say they need and if coming to Atlanta, giving some speeches and rallying people, um, if that's what they say they need, great. But is the message? is the message. We need you all to to stand with us and we need to be unified and we need to work together and we need to, you know, push, push, push your legislators. Or is the message as the president, I have a duty to make sure that I am doing everything I can, every single tool in my toolbox to get uh, people, the folks in Congress, especially the Senate, to get this done. That is my promise. That is my work for you. But the other thing is, is that what they need? Is that what they want right now? Uh, That's the other thing for me. You know, I'm a very boots to the ground person. So uh, I, you know, as the activist, I'd be, is it come and give a speech or do we want you to come and, you know, hit some doors with us? Is it that we want you to come? Like that's, that's the thing. So um, I haven't been a part of those conversations, so I don't know, but I just feel like 
we have to use whatever we can. And sometimes we have to stretch ourselves. And um, when I was out there on those steps of the Capitol fighting for people to not lose their homes, you know, trying to get that eviction moratorium uh, extended, it was just, what do I have in my toolbox? Like, who am I? What can I pull from me? Who am I? What can, what can I offer uh, this world? And that was it in that moment. And hopefully our president can do the same. Yeah, because um, even with him doing this, the reality is that this is still something that has to be approved by all 50 Democratic senators. OK, and we know of two who ain't going to do this shit. All right. Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin. Um, and I, I think seeing their constant obstruction is just very disheartening for people. I mean, as you know, Representative Bush, black people laid it on the line to get this man in office. Right. Right shortcomings and all we knew what we was getting all right so we laid it on the line you mentioned the organizers boots on the ground my friend latasha brown with black voters matter <laughs> yes your friend as well she's on the ground what up lb <laughs> she uh, her and cliff albright have done everything possible to try to fortify the the black vote in georgia yeah. and you know i guess for everybody it is a little disheartening to see that something like build back better, which I'll get into a little bit more with you legislation that could change people's lives are being blocked by these two clowns. And I just wonder how concerned are you about the ripple effect that their obstruction could have on the rest of the party or what kind of effect it is having? Because as it is right now, people are predicting that the Democrats are going to lose the house. What do you say to people who are feeling discouraged when they see that so much that could help them is constantly being blocked by somebody else. That's not the president. Yeah. And I am disappointed myself. I'm disappointed. I am appalled that our biggest fight right now with some of this legislation is people that are on our own team. And as just regular everyday people in districts all across the country, folks don't care about who is the name that is holding a vote. They care about getting their needs met. They care about those resources that are dangling in front of them that, oh, this is a thing. Like, oh, I can have my childcare paid. My, my three and four-year-old can go to the childcare center for free now, just like if they were in the fifth grade at a public school. That's a thing that can actually happen. Like people finding out, well, I can get this, Child tax credit, this money every single month to help me take care of my home, take care of my children. Um, this money that is not something that's going to make me the richest person in the world, but it will keep me from struggling. It's hard. It will pull me out of this place of poverty that I have been fighting and struggling in so for so long. It'll help me to get stable and get on my feet. And that is a thing that we can, that that money just, that somebody can make a decision and that money is there for me and so many others. But then there's also somebody that can say, you know what? Nope, you don't deserve it. That is the thing. People, people need to see that I have this need. I have A, B, C, and D needs. I don't need you fixing F, K, and Q 
I need you working on A, B, C, and D. And that's what we were trying to bring to the people. And that's what's being stalled. That's what's being blocked. We need Build Back Better. We need every single thing in Build Back Better right now. We need the community violence uh, prevention money. We need the money for uh, climate action, real and true climate action. We need the money that's going to go to our nurses and our doulas, the money that goes to substance use programs. And we need that stuff right now. We need the money for um, housing. We have housing structures that have not, like, especially in public housing, have not been touched in 30 years and people have to live there. We want to put the real investment there to help um, fix that, fix those housing uh, units. We're saying you deserve at least your basic needs met. So we will keep, we will keep fighting. And let me say this to, to the people listening. There are some of us in Congress that don't care about our name. Some of us, they don't care about making sure we get the leadership position, making sure we get to be the one that is picked for this and picked for that. And, and everybody, everybody loves us within our caucus. Some of us don't care about that as much as we care about you. And some of us don't care at all. Let me just make that clear. I, I don't care about all of that stuff. I care about St. Louis getting their needs met. And because I know what it's like, Jamel, I know what it's like to be so hungry that you can't even think straight. I know what it's like to sleep in a car and, and wonder if I close my eyes too long, is my child going to end up getting so cold that they don't wake up in the morning? I know what that's like. I know what it's like to stand in line with my wick, with my wick paper after paper after paper and how it looks when the when the cashier is like oh somebody else with wick even though that's not the way it works anymore i know what those things are like and so how dare i i know what it's like to have a, a police officer's boot on my face so how dare i not fight with everything i have in me and it's not just me there are others as well mm. yeah it, <laughs> just for a moment of levity um, I grew up on food stamps, too. And people don't know these days about, you know, they have the card. Now, the debit card. Y'all know about that food stamp booklet. Like, y'all, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> tearing off. It, it looked like Monopoly money. Like, you would have sworn that this, this shit don't even look real. And it's like, y'all don't know about walking into that store with that booklet. Man. And everybody knows what that book is. Everybody knows what the book is. Now, you could be a little bit more covert. But back then, no, you could not. Everybody knew you were on food stamps. You know, Representative Bush, I think what people really love about you is the fact it's something you just hit on and said that you don't care about your name. You're not there to get famous. You're there to serve the people. So a question I ask everybody who appears on this podcast uh, goes right in line with sort of that mentality. But when do you think you became unbothered? So it started just through a bunch of just so many trials and just feeling like all of it was my fault. Like, just like, wow, I can't seem to get my credit together. I can't seem... To get, even though I, I'm getting paid a little bit more, I can't seem to get a hold of my bills. And 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 all of a sudden, why did my student loan amount go up? Why can't I get a hold of this? Why is childcare? Why does it cost so much? Like just all of those things, and just feeling like, wow, you must be doing it wrong. Like you're doing life wrong. Something is wrong with you. Uh, and then later on, when Michael Brown was gunned down, um, and just being out there on those streets of Ferguson for those more than 400 days, and then protest after protest, even after that, year after year for justice for so many different uh, uh, people that lost their lives at the hands of police. That's when it started. It was like, you know what? These are policy decisions. Like somebody is making this decision. Somebody had a thought and they got their friends to go along with them. And, uh, and this 
happened. And I'm the one that gets the brunt of, uh, of this failed leadership. I catch that brunt. So, but it wasn't until after I lost my second race um, when I ran for Congress in 2018, it wasn't until I lost that one that I really got to see like, you know what, put it all out there on the line, put it on the line and don't care what people think. Don't care if they don't like you. Don't care if they don't like your brace. Don't care if they don't like the fact that you speak, you know, African American vernacular English. Don't care if, you know, don't care about any of it. You just represent the people the way that you wanted to see St. Louis represented. And so that was it because I realized that people were so, like, there was this disconnect, like feeling like nobody's hearing me, you know? And so if I'm from the ground with the people that's on the ground, then let me represent them right there in that same place. You said a moment ago that you know what it's like to be hungry. I mean, you've been unhoused before. As you said, you face a student loan debt. You know, you're you're a single woman out here raising kids. So you understand the intricacies of this problem. You know what it is to need and to want as well. How has your experiences and even the trauma that you had, how has that informed how you approach the policies you support and the policies that you want to bring forward to represent the people of St. Louis? First, this work that I have um, signed up for really does save lives, you know, and just knowing that, you know, because my background is nursing. Just being able to do something, use something that I have to be able to first save a life. I can help do other things. I can, you know, we can work on getting you a job and making sure you got to wash and dry to clean your clothes. We can make sure you get your, your electricity on and all of those things. But I first need to save your life. And so that's what I think about because the trauma, I walk around in the halls of Congress all the time with the reminder of how my face felt when that boot hit me the police officer's boot. I I walk around remembering how cold it was and what it's like to be so cold that nothing warms you. You know, I I remember that. I remember the day when my daughter um, um, could have lost her life in a house fire because we were heating our home with um, space heaters and flames came home from school and in her bedroom, the flames were shooting out of the socket. Um, I remember all of those things. So I, I haven't pushed it away and I won't act like it's not there. Like it's very, very present for me every single day. And I, and, and just that thought that somebody could have done something different and I would not have had to walk through those things the way that I did. So, you know what, be that. And so whenever I'm tired, be that whenever I want to run back or whenever, you know, the scrutiny and the criticism is so terrible and so loud, but also so phony, you know, lies. I still remember if I stop, because that's what they want us to do. If I stop, if I shut up, then somebody will go through what I went through and I cannot sit back and allow it. So that's how I just, I remember that my work first has to be to save lives. I have to love humanity, which means every human, every person, I have to love you. Even when you don't like me, I have to love you in spite of that. Because I still care if you eat. I don't care if you don't vote for me. I don't care if you don't like me. I don't care if you you call me all kinds of uh, kinds of names. You know, but did you eat today? Did your kids eat? That's what I care about. So that's how I do it. So do you think being a member of Congress has made you more determined rather than more cynical? Because you now you see how the stake is made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely more determined. And part of that is because, you know, I see why people you know, when we, we always hear, well, not always, we so often hear, oh, 
this person was one way. And then when they got into office, then they changed and now they're this way. Well, I, I see already how that can happen. I see that when you are pushing against the grain or when you're just speaking to issues that you know of and other people aren't so familiar with because it's not their situation, that you have to carry that thing alone and you're carrying that thing against people who have power and have uh, the power of persuasion, have, have this bigger voice and have a gavel. So I can see how that happens. Um, but I didn't come here for any other reason. I didn't come to Congress for any other reason but to help my folks. And so once I can't help my folks anymore, the way that they need to be helped, um, the way that I've wanted, the way that I would look and see who's going to do this. So if, if I can't be that, then I have no purpose there. I have more. I definitely want to get to with Corey Bush, but we're going to take a brief break and we'll be right back with more with the Congresswoman. So something really embarrassing happened to me a couple days before the Super Bowl. I went back and forth about whether or not to share this, but I decided I'll keep it real with y'all. So I got a story to tell about how Popeye's almost fucked up my Super Bowl weekend. If you recall, I told you all a few pies back that I was determined to get my shit together in terms of shedding my COVID fluff. So far, I'm down nine pounds. So I'm really proud of what I've accomplished, especially since it has been more about making subtle lifestyle changes and smarter food choices. I don't think of it as a diet as much as I think of it as an alteration. That said, I think it's important, even as you're trying to lose weight or live healthier, that you reward yourself. It's unrealistic to live a life where you cut out everything. So instead of calling it a cheat day, my husband and I refer to it as a reward day. So on our reward day, we ordered Popeye's. Now, I have been basically dreaming about this shit. We ordered a big box of chicken tenders, spicy, of course. I also got a two piece with Cajun fries, red beans and rice. Side note, Popeye's. Why did you take the Cajun rice off the menu? It was your second best side. Run that shit back. So anyway, my mouth is all watered up for some Popeye's. And I took one bite and I just felt my front teeth kind of slide. It was not a reflection of the chicken, which was tender, crispy and delicious. My teeth sliding. Well, that was because and to add a little more context, I had temporary veneers in my mouth because back in the mid 2000s, I slipped in a hotel bathroom and chipped my two front teeth. No, I wasn't drunk. I did it the night before I was covering the game at the Big Ten tournament. And thankfully, somehow in Indianapolis, Indiana, I found a dentist that was open on a Saturday morning and they fixed my teeth with these temporary teeth called resins or something like that. Got a bag and fix my teeth. I don't know what it is about me and why I seem to court tooth related disasters right before I have important shit to do. But apparently that's my calling card. So when I felt these teeth shift, I thought, uh-oh, something has gone wrong with these veneers. But then I took another bite and it still felt real weird. I took a look at my husband and he said, hey, your teeth look funny. Have you always had a gap? And that's when I knew those temporary veneers were gone. I ran to the mirror and sure enough, I looked like I've been chewing rocks, jagged edge like a motherfucker. I definitely had teeth like I worked the late shift at Waffle House. 
My shit was all fucked up and the timing could not have been worse. The next day I was making a guest appearance on a podcast at one of the busiest shopping centers in Los Angeles because they were doing it live in front of people. Saturday night, I was being honored at a special dinner hosted by the Rams and 1800 tequila. Sunday, I was being honored at Essence inaugural black women in sports brunch. And then, of course, I was attending the actual Super Bowl. That means a lot of pictures, a lot of videos, and it was about to be all closed lip smile everything. My husband suggested that I call my dentist's office, even though it was 10 p.m. when all this happened. I left a voicemail message and thankfully my dentist texted me within the next hour to let me know she would come in on Saturday, a day they were normally closed, and hook me up. Got a bag and fix my teeth. Dr. Marshall over at New Smile Studio in Valley Village. I owe you big time. You got all my chompers all the way together. I was able to smile freely the rest of Super Bowl weekend. As for Popeyes, I'm not going to be off of them because of that, because it wasn't their fault. Me and Popeyes, we like Nettie and Celie from Color Purple. Me and you, us never part, Maki Dada. And now, back to more with Corey Bush. You announced um, recently you were seeking re-election another term. Was there any part of you that thought about not doing that? No. I ran for office. 2016, I didn't complete the mission. Uh, So I ran for office again in 2018. I didn't complete the mission. Now that I'm in office, uh, I'm in a position to be able to complete that mission, which is what I said, bringing those deliverables and loving on everybody. I have to, and saving lives, making sure that Black lives are brought to the forefront and that people know what our hurt and what our pain has been and that and that you're going to recognize it. You're going to have to acknowledge it. You know, you uh, uh, this thing is real. What happens to Black women and Black girls is real. And what happens to what happens to us in healthcare, what happens to us in education, what the things that we need that people aren't always willing to speak up or speak often enough about. When we talk about police violence or mass incarceration or any of those things, school to prison pipelines, childhood traumas, when we talk about all of those things and how they affect the Black community, somebody has to speak up and hold tight to it and hold tight to it the same way folks hold tight to white supremacy in this country. We got to hold tight to those things the same way to help to break this down. And so I didn't complete the mission, so I couldn't stop. (laughs) (laughs) I heard that. And I'm I'm glad to hear that because of the way you know, given everything that's happened, I wouldn't blame you, especially coming from an activist background. I'm wondering, like, how frustrating it can be for you sometimes, because activism, as you know, that's a completely different mindset It's resistance, push, you know, get things done. You don't you, you don't need a coalition. You just there to press the system. And now that you're sort of inside the system, how do you sort of merge being a traditional politician with who you are as an activist and what you've been trained to do in terms of pushing resistance. Yeah. So um, before I walked in Congress the very first day before I was sworn in, I said I was coming in as the politivist, um, the uh, politician and the activist. I was marrying the two. And I said that I would not take off my activist you know, bag, my activist hat to be able to be in Congress or to do this work. And it's an incredible job. You know, it's an honor every single day for me to serve the people of St. Louis um, this way. So thinking about what got me here, what got me here, what what helped the people to believe that this person, because the person before me, that family had been in the seat for 52 years from since 1969. 
And so people made a decision. You know what? We want something different. And this different we've seen on our streets. We've seen her in the streets. We've seen her, you know, uh, uh, being active all over the community and showing up. That's one thing people always said about me with nothing, nothing else. She shows up, you know, and so be that same person there. Now, is it difficult sometimes? Because, it, it, you know, absolutely. Let me say this. It is very lonely. It is very lonely sometimes. And, um, I'm an introvert and people don't know it. I'm a, I'm an introvert. And so when I speak, it's because I feel like I have something to say. So if I don't have anything, and I'm shy. You certainly picked the right job. <laughs> I say that sarcastically. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, right. you know, so when I speak, it's because I feel like I have something to say. Um, and so in Congress, I'm always, I, you know, I always have to assert myself. I always have to say, look, I understand this is what's going on. But in St. Louis, we're number one for police murder. And we have been for several years. And I need you all to pay attention to this. I know you're not number one. I know you're not number 17, but I need you all to pay attention to this. You don't care, but I care. That's why I'm here is to fight, is to fight to save lives in my community. You don't care that we're number one for homicides in the country. You don't care. This was, you know, um, up until January. We're number one for homicides in this country. And the number two spot is a, it's a 20 point gap. You don't understand because you're not the ones dying, but my community is. Uh, so using that as that thing. So it would be very lonely, but, but I'm here. That's that part of the activist though, that, that push, that constant advocacy that, that if I have to do it alone, I'll do it. If I have to, you know, as, as the activist, it was uh, rain, sleet, hell, snow. Hell no, we won't go, right? Well, it's the same thing in Congress. Is it also n not easy? Um, and not just the loneliness that you're talking about, but you're working alongside people, Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene, Josh Hawley, Lauren Boebert, who, one, haven't been held accountable for their roles in the insurrection and also who have created for you um, and even for a lot of your fellow representatives, what is a hostile working environment? I don't know how. I mean, look, Corey, I can tell you a praying woman. I know you you have a pastor background because I've even jumped on Lauren Burberry by now. So I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad that you are not me. This is why you're in office and I'm not Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'll be like, we got to step outside, sis. It's what it is. Right. But how much or how difficult it is, that part of it is that there's a toxic work environment that's happening in Congress right now. So how do you handle that part? As someone who has been in management, I worked in management for more than a decade. Just thinking about all the situations that I've gone through from managing in childcare to managing uh, as a nurse, thinking about all the different situations that happen and how we elevate those things to HR, you know, you know, and then and then as the manager, you get it back from HR and then execute on whatever the plan is and, and, and knowing that we don't have that in Congress. We don't have an HR department. We don't have anybody that we can, you know, uh, elevate something to. We, you know, it's just, you just deal with it. I think part of it too is because folks are different when you are in face-to-face. -face. You know, people, some of these folks will be on television and saying all kinds of things about me, just all, you know, tweeting all kinds of crap. Oh, she's a terrorist. She's a, a, a murderer. She's this and that. And, you know, um, but then when they see me, <laughs> they ain't got that same energy. I, I suspected that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and so I, but uh, you know, so we, so we understand part of it is just, it's a game. It's a way that they are able to raise money. That's why sometimes I don't say anything because I've learned that if I react, 
they use that to raise money and they make, they raise millions off of what we do, but us, we don't, you know, so we, so it, so the thing is, okay, I'm not going to help you. I'm, you know, so that's why sometimes why we stay, why we say stay silent. It's not because we don't want to, but the other thing is that I have to remember is as a black woman in Congress, if I do anything to them, so much can happen against me. But if they do that exact same thing to me, they would probably not even get a smack on the wrist. So I have to remember that all the time. Like if you do what you would want to do, what would happen to you? And would that be the best way to serve the people of St. Louis if you get put out of Congress um, or if charges are brought up against you? So I have to think about that. Um, but the other part of that though, Jamel, is when they do those things, they put a bigger target on our backs. The amount of hatred is unbelievable from every inbox on social media to any email that we have, email inbox, to just people even on the street. Getting death threats is a very real thing that we have to take. We, you know, and it's not just for me. If a death, when death threats come, I'm, I'm not alone. I don't walk alone. So when I'm in D.C., I'm with my team. So does that mean that now I'm putting my team at risk, too? Because they're with me. So if somebody is trying to come and hurt me, with, if, if they miss, do they hit my staff? You know, so that is so they think it's a game. They're playing this game to feed their base. But then and not even totally serious about it because they say different things behind closed doors. But they do these things to rile up their base. But then those things hurt people like me. And for me, especially, I've had not only death threats in my life, I've had multiple death attempts before I ever enter Congress just from being an activist. And so this thing is so real. And they don't understand from the standpoint of being a black woman in America. They don't understand, you know, what that's like. They'll never understand that. And so with them being so callous and them being so just neglectful about humanity, you know, it's sickening. But what happens? Is it that if I die, then is then is everybody like, oh, wow, we really should have gotten some security for her. Wow, she said it. She gave us the tweets. She gave us the emails where they said we're going to hang you on on this particular day. Where they said that they were going to fry her kids like bacon. We they get we she gave it to us. Yeah, I mean, one of the many reasons why when they refuse to take any kind of meaningful action against the lawmakers who say this kind of incendiary things, um, it's a low point. It's a low point for our, our political system. Um, and so I certainly was glad to see you stand with Representative Omar. I know you've gone through your own, as you mentioned, death threats uh, to stand with her uh, because that, you know, again, I, y'all got great patience. And that's what makes this so kind of messed up is that it's just political theater to them. Meanwhile, you know, your life is at risk every time they mention your name because they know the people that follow them, what they will do. And so, um, you know, that part is just beyond disappointing. You know, I want to ask you about how you made this decision. I think last year it was a hearing on reproductive rights and you decided to publicly share how you became pregnant as the result of a rape. What made you decide that you wanted to publicly disclose something so traumatic that you had been through? Ooh, yeah. So when I um, when I heard about the Texas SB8 bill and that it had passed, first of all, I just couldn't believe it. 
but I also just just how crazy it is, you know, a ten thousand dollar bounty and you know and you know and six week uh, ban abortion ban um, when people don't even oftentimes know they're they're pregnant. Thinking about not only how that would affect Texas but all a bunch of other states because we knew that there would be copycat uh, legislation coming forward. So I knew I had to do something. And again, what do I have in my toolbox? Because I, at this point, I have no institutional power, you know? Um, so what do I have? I have my voice. I have my experience. You've used it before. You've been vulnerable for the people before. So pull that out. And so I did. And I thought about it. Like, I had to talk about a situation I hadn't even thought about since it happened. Like, as I told the story the first time um, for this hearing, I didn't even know. That was when I first realized that it was rape. Because I hadn't thought about it since it happened um, when I was 20 years ago. Um, and it broke me down. So I knew I had to do something to help uh, whatever I could lend to help stop um, this, from, this from happening all over the country. And, and I wanted to tell every little Black girl that we have nothing to be ashamed of. That when we see the headlines, when we see the Republican men in power in our states passing laws, that govern what we do with our bodies, our own bodies. I wanted them to know that I know what we are seeing. But right, right now, we live in a society that has failed to legislate love and justice. I wanted, I wanted them to know we recognize they have failed to legislate love and justice for us. But because we deserve better, because we demand better, because we're worthy, you know, I will put myself on the line for you. And by the way. Your experience aside, like you don't have to be a, a victim of sexual assault to have the right to have an abortion, you know, because I know often the conversation is framed like, oh, you know, but if you were the victim of rape or incest or sexual assault, then it's OK. No, no, it's OK, period. <laughs> All right. Absolutely. So as we, you know, head into this uh, election cycle, I mean, as we mentioned, you know, you're, you're seeking reelection this year. What are you most proud of accomplishing as an elected official? Uh, you know, I would say people kept telling me before I came in, oh, you're a freshman. You know, nobody's you're not going to have a voice. Nobody's going to listen to you. You won't get anything done. Uh, you know, it's going to take you years to build relationships, to be able to move any legislation. Well, not so. You know, we introduced our first piece of legislation during the insurrection on January 6th. And uh, we just started rolling from there. So up to now, I think we've moved like 15 pieces of legislation out of the uh, House of Representatives. Uh, we got that, you know, extension on the eviction moratorium. Uh, and even though we didn't get the full time frame that we wanted, we were able to get um, a few more weeks to help keep people in their homes. We get those messages. We get the messages from people who say that that action helped them stay in their homes. Uh, and then. So many people just feel like, wow, I feel represented. Like there is a voice. There's somebody that looks like me, that talks like me. You know, somebody who has a tattoo. Like so many people reached out to me. They were like, you show your tattoo on the floor. Like I felt like I came alive when I saw that. And I'm like, I didn't even realize, but that representation so matters. And so that I think I am most proud of is that there are people who have felt left out, left out and unheard and unseen for so long. Like you have to look, be, you know, a certain way to be in office or be in Congress. People, so many people just feel like I can do it. I see Corey, I can do it. 
Um, and so that's what I'm most proud of is that people feel like, you know, um, a regular person from a jacked up background in, in so many ways that has dealt with trauma, even though you don't have to go through trauma, you know, but we don't want you to go through trauma. But somebody, even somebody like that, that people counted out, even this person from the bricks of St. Louis, even this person can do some can do some things and help bring change. So the little girls that come up to me on the street, they run up to me. And they say, I saw you on television. And they come and grab me by my legs. You know, the kids that send me pictures, the, the teachers that send me pictures of the kids uh, looking up at my picture um, uh, on a TV screen and they're talking about me or they send me cards. Kids send me cards, you know, stacks like this, you know, thank you. And you can barely make out the words, you, you know, it's just, you know, sometimes it's just squiggly lines. That's what I'm most proud of because they know at a young age that it's possible. And I always tell them, don't be like me, be better than me, be greater than me. Only, only allow me to be what you step on to get to where you go. In case uh, somebody listening doesn't know this, what you did was you slept on the Capitol for four nights. You were there for four nights and five days to uh, try to get the eviction moratorium expanded because uh, during the pandemic, that was a lifeline for a lot of people, as you mentioned. And I'm glad they were able to communicate with you how much you probably, as you mentioned, you're in this to save lives. You definitely saved somebody's life uh, right there. All right. Uh, Representative Bush, before we get you out of here. Got some fun questions for you because uh, I know you don't get asked fun questions often. All right. I don't. You do, you do not. So uh, I play a little game with every guest that appears on the podcast. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. You, can get, with you get two choices and you got to pick one. So right out the gate, hot in here or country grammar? Mm, country grammar. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm sure Nelly would appreciate that. <laughs> Grease or Grease 2? Grease 2. <laughs> Grease 2. I understand that's where uh, some of your fashion sense was inspired from. Is that true? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Emos or Dewey's? Now, those are two St. Louis establishments for people who are not familiar. Both pizza places, correct? Yes, I believe so. I haven't had Dewey's before, so I got I'm an Emos person. <laughs> it's across the street. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, red hot riplets or gooey butter cake? Oh my God, red hot riplets. <laughs> now, these are just chips. Is that correct? Chips, but they are, so they're crunchy and they are like, you know, you if you want a uh, flavor on a chip, red hot riplets. If you like spice, yeah. Red hot riplets. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's a glowing endorsement. I'm here for some St. Louis food. I've had Emos. Emos was great. Uh, my husband and I, we were talking about it last night, the gooey butter cake. He's a big fan. So I see there's some more St. Louis cuisine I need to uh, certainly sample. Um, Representative Bush, I know you're so busy and I cannot thank you enough for spending this time with me on the podcast. And I wish I lived in St. Louis so I could vote for you. I really do. I mean that. Because we can hang out too. <laughs> Dog, you, what? They ain't ready for us in these streets. <laughs> They're not ready. But maybe one day when uh, this panorama is over with, we, we can. 
<laughs> right? We can maybe uh, have a meal or grab a bite or something like that. But I just wish you much love, much success. And, um, you know, the people I'm sure, you know, just based off your personality, your story, they just they fuck with you. And so I, I really um, you give me hope that our political system is not hopelessly unfixable. So thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And thank you for inviting me and thank you for just being a voice. No matter what comes your way, you always, you know, the ball comes and you just knock it out the park. And I just, you know, I'm just so amazed at what you're doing and how you have built. So, you know, you've given other young girls, um, especially black young girls, you know, you let them know that there is a place, you know, that there is a place that's different than other, what other people have said that we where we could be. So I just want to thank you for that. I want to lift you up, you know, in this moment. I want to thank you for joining me, spending this time with me. Um, Representative Bush is getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Fight segment fuck it i'm bothered Last week, to celebrate Valentine's Day, the good folks who run Versus, Swiss Beats, and Timberland decided to give the culture a Valentine's Day gift in the form of a Versus battle between Anthony Hamilton and Music Soul Child. Beautiful idea. But the time leading up to the Versus, that beautiful idea got shitted on left and right because they were trying to turn this into a pay-per-view event. And the people weren't having it. And fuck it, I'm bothered. So the original plan was that viewers had to sign up for a free 14 day trial on Triller in order to see the show, which I believe may have been about $14 from Twitter. One user wrote, imagine versus trying to charge for a versus after being free for two years during Black History Month. Another Twitter user said, you charging me to watch an unorganized versus battle with technical difficulties, Ciroc and Doritos defunded. It was a whole lot of I ain't paying for this shit energy going on. I get the vitriol, but I have to keep it real here. We can't keep hollering about how we need to support black business and our own talents and then not actually want to pay black folks for their time and talents. Versus was a cultural idea that got us through the pandemic and reminded us of the power of music to bring folks together. Why shouldn't Swiss Beats, Timbaland, the artists who perform and others be compensated for their time? It costs money. I know they have brand sponsors, but Swiss and Timberland flipped an Instagram live into a business partnership. Isn't that what we ultimately want black creators to do? There's a long history of black people being exploited and not being paid what they're worth because that's what institutional racism was designed to do. We can't pick that white supremacy baton up and condition ourselves into believing it's okay to not compensate people or it's okay to expect things to be cheaper or even free or that we should always have black people in positions where they're only doing things for love. Maintaining culture costs. Of course, I'm not advocating that it be priced away from the very people whose existence it depends on, but can't complain about there being a lack of black content if when we get it, we grumble about supporting it. Decision makers often use our lack of support as an excuse not to give us platforms or to deny us representation in bigger projects or to pay us cheaply. Support is subscribing and paying for black content. It is not a one way street where you get entertained and the people that entertain you get nothing or a little something. 
Stay unbothered. Time to break you off with the fodder. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Uh, my word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Fry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, the choice is yours. Revisited by Black Sheep. Written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. On behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of 75 and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word. How I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it.